You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Please be seated. We got another great show for you today, and um, we're broadcasting live here from um, the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach, another sunny, beautiful California day here. Um, we are counting down to the election. Um, when we speak to you next week, the election will be over, and I know that brings a smile to some. Um, and we have with us uh, Atlantic from the Atlantic Council, Kenneth Gear. He's a um, a PhD and a CISSP who um, has been a senior research scientist and uh, expert on cyber warfare. Um, and um, for example, he has spent time with the uh, National Security Agency, the Naval Crime Investigative Service, and um, has worked a lot with NATO on cybersecurity efforts. Um, Dr. Gears, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. So, um, Everyone is buzzing right now about what appears to be um, Russian cyber attacks on the U.S. Um, on the eve of the election. And uh, before we get into that, um, I wonder if you can talk briefly about uh, the uh, kind of the increasing role of cyber attacks in Russian foreign policy. Yeah, I think that um, national agencies are. Uh, they're numerous, and they're all trying to fulfill their their country's national security requirements or political military uh, interests and uh, please their decision makers. So um, you could have it's it's part of what agencies are doing are um, fulfilling these through computer network operations, short, shorthand cyber attacks, but that encompasses a wide range of influence operations, cyber espionage, uh, and, and things. Um, so Russia is very aggressive in foreign policy these days. Uh, they have a very combative president, and there's a lot of tension. There's a war in Ukraine, 
Uh, there's NATO building up on the border. It's really not surprising that you would see some of their um, national operations taking place in cyberspace as well. And you know, just um, for those unfamiliar with history, there has been a lot of tension uh, between the U.S. and Russia over the expansion of in, of NATO into the former Soviet bloc. That in essence, NATO is now on Russians' border, Russia's borders, and a lot of the cyber attacks that we've seen from Russia seem to emanate or be directed at those border countries. You know, for example, Estonia. That's right. So it, it actually precedes Estonia. Um, one of the biggest, uh, one of the very first major cyber attacks discovered in the mid 1980s at the University of California was, in fact, traced back to Moscow and cyber espionage against our U.S. national laboratories. But then, it's really, if you look back uh, closer to Moscow, at the beginning of the World Wide Web, mo for most of us, 1994 was sort of the year in which we maybe got a computer and saw our first website. Um, that was also the period that there began a, a crisis between Chechnya, which is inside Russia, part of it, and Moscow to try and uh, um, go independent. But there was a series of cyber attacks, uh, websites created by Chechnya that were uh, propaganda-oriented and then Russian hackers trying to shut them down. In Kosovo in 1999, the same thing. The Russia sided with Serbia, and the, there was basically a lot of cyber attacks against the White House, NATO, etc. Uh, if you fast forward to, to Estonia in 2007, um, Georgia in 2008, as well as Kyrgyzstan in 2008, Lithuania in 2009, um, Ukraine in 2014, 15, and 16. Uh, there are uh, sort of on the periphery of Russia, you can see uh, computer network operations or cyber attacks used in support of, of Russian um, national interests. And it's not just Russia, but you could see that for other countries as well, China as well as the U.S. And what's interesting about the, for example, you mentioned Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, I believe it, it, they actually hacked, one, they tried to disrupt the election. And they also hacked the um, kind of the, the ministry and re responsible for the election to post false results at one point. Um, so it, it, them involving themselves in the elections is, is not a, a new thing. That's right. And, in, and so there are lone hackers, there are hacker collectives like Anonymous, but then there are bureaucracies as well. Uh, and, and when there is a multifaceted cyber attack that happens over a period of time, different layers and levels, as well as coordination, um, you, you get the sense that it's a country coming after you. So in the case of the elections in Ukraine in 2014, not only, you're absolutely right, there was the far-right candidate who actually got very few votes, but was announced uh, on the website as the winner, that information was immediately published on Russian television. Right, suggesting a coordinated operation, um, and so then you get you get the sense that you, your adversary is uh, um, you know may uh, uh, overwhelm you in terms of talent uh, and mission and uh, focus. And um, in terms of deciding. You know, fingerprints of a cyber attack. Is it a nation state? Is it a rogue actor? You know, um, I think about, for example, 
you know, some of the events that led to escalations or actual war um, in the non-cyber world. Um, so, for example, Vietnam, we had a major escalation after the, um, the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964. And 50 years later, we, we still don't know what exactly happened, mm-hmm. whether or not you know, there was an attack that um, needed to be responded to or not. Um, and how, I mean, if you can't be sure of facts in, in the um, real world, how, how do you know for sure that someone is responsible for a cyber attack? Exactly. I mean, who shot JFK? Um, you know, did, right. Roosevelt, did Roosevelt know about Pearl Harbor prior? Um, there's all kinds of uh, important questions out there. And cyberspace is nothing if not a big hall of smoke and mirrors for, for spies. Um, I do think that we need to be careful because um, in especially with dictators and autocratic regimes, I think that, that the Internet poses a huge threat. Um, so just like Napoleon and Hitler discovered that Russia has enormous strategic depth in the traditional military political space, so, so will dictators. They're, they're terrified of the Internet. They, it, we actually need to be patient and careful on cyber defense and not overreacting because the Internet looks a lot more like democracy than it does uh, dictatorship. Right. Um, that's not to say that it's not a, it's a terrific tool for surveillance. So I'm not I'm not suggesting otherwise. But um, Putin, in this case, or uh, in Iran or North Korea, China, um, other leaders will they they are threatened by the, uh, giving so much power to citizens, as well as the dynamic and unpredictable nature of cyberspace. So uh, we have some built-in advantages uh, there. Um, but it is possible that a cyber conflict, in some sense, as crazy as it sounds, could lead to a real conflict because of the the power, the reach, the ubiquity, the asymmetric nature, whatever you want to call it, of the Internet in cyberspace. It is real. All you have to do is think about the uh, the power in the hands of a student. So you used to, when you wrote a research paper, you used to have to sit in the library and thumb through books. But right. no longer. In five minutes, you can come up with a, a, a pretty comprehensive uh, um, list of papers and books that you have to read for a research paper, as well as blow through them searching for keywords, you know, uh, which are most important. So if you, if you analogize to hack, uh, soldiers and spies, that same asymmetry uh, applies in the hands of the CIA or the KGB uh, or the Mossad, for example. They're able to do operations that are fast and that potentially will um, overwhelm you in terms of size and scope uh, before you see it coming. So why would Russia want to get involved in our election? Well, I, I th- yeah. What I is, think- what's the game? Well, I think that somebody there has decided that Trump is more uh, beneficial to uh, – Russian national interest in Hillary. Um, It's it said that Hillary and Putin have a poor relationship. I think Hillary is seen to be a relative hawk uh, on military policy within the U.S. Um, Trump, as we can quite clearly see, um, has a lot of business interests around the world, including in Russia. And for whatever reason, he appears to be very reluctant to criticize Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, naturally, that seems to fit into a, a, a favored candidate status for Moscow. 
But beyond that, I think that a dictator, anybody in Putin's uh, uh, shoes, uh, has an interest in diminishing the integrity of our election because it takes heat off him. I mean, I, I thoroughly believe, personally, I just spent two years in Ukraine, that um, when, it, from Moscow's perspective, when they saw the events in 2014 in Ukraine, they thought Moscow's next. So we're going to stiff arm this, you know, democratic um, momentum uh, on, outside of our borders, and they're willing to invade other countries to prevent the process of democratization from taking root in Russia. And, you know, I think I, I saw a quote of yours in, in terms of you know, whether or not that it comes back to them. You said, well, if they could deny having troops in Ukraine, um, you know, it's pretty easy for them to deny being involved in cyber attacks. That's right. Um, cyber is notoriously um, difficult to attribute attacks. But nation states, they have this whole big toolbox of uh, signals intelligence, human intelligence, uh, diplomatic um, and financial coercion to come up with attribution. And so they, they really it's, – it's, it's I know that a lot of very technical personnel, and they're quite right, you can only tell so much from log files and malicious code. But trust me, in Washington, they've got a huge toolbox in order to do attribution. Now, there's been some recent revelations as it, it, that have been debated about how strong the evidence is of connections between the Trump campaign and the, the Russians, including um, some server logs that show um, communications back and forth. Do, do you put much weight in those? Well, you know, I think that, that um, it depends on, on peer review and how much you know, work and evidence is, is shown. But what is for sure is that nations, every nation, their intelligence agencies are dealing with this um, new phenomenon of crowdsourced and decentralized uh, cyber defense analysis. Not only companies uh, are doing this, um, but researchers and universities. And so uh, I, I wouldn't put too much weight on any one report. But when you have, let's say, a half a dozen cybersecurity companies, as well as universities in multiple countries, um, providing evidence and analysis that, say, point to the U.S. or China mm -hmm. or Russia or Israel or France as the source of a cyber attack, you know, then, then, you, then you, um, you, you really do have to bow a, a bit to the amount of research and, and evidence offered. And so um, we were talking offline about a story that you tweeted actually that predicts a a major cyber crisis mm -hmm. in the first hundred days of the new president. Um, tell me what you think about that story and and what you think might might happen during the, that first hundred days. Well, I think every president probably has a, a sort of a an agenda that they bring to Washington, and I want to, you know, uh, illiteracy, uh, obesity, these kinds of things. But there's no doubt that that the the vulnerability of c computers and networks are um, are high on the agenda. For example, in, in NATO, uh, ten years ago, if you look through NATO literature, there there is not a mention of hacker, cyber, network, computer, none of it. But today, it's mentioned as one of the top three threats to the alliance, along with terrorism and ballistic missiles. So it's come a long way very quickly. 
Uh, and in 10 years, I don't think anybody can predict where we'll be. But uh, the whoever, I promise you, uh, on day one of the White House, cyber will be on the agenda at the first meeting of the National Security Advisors. Now, in this particular case, uh, we have Hillary Clinton, um, let's say, and could be Trump, but I think it'll be Clinton. She has, uh, she has already a cyber crisis on her hands. Right. The, the email um, catastrophe, as well as the Russian cyber attacks, uh, these, these are personal issues, and they, they will inform her decision-making um, from the get-go, from personal experience. And, and that's, that is a big deal. That's kind of like when George W. Bush came into the White House saying, you know, I've got to go get Saddam because he tried to kill my daddy. Right. Now, it, it, I think there's a certain vulnerability that occurs when you have governments in transition. And I'm always struck by, uh, I spoke with uh, a senior Clinton aide uh, at the, the inaugural ball on um, January 20th, 1993. And um, he said, you know, Bennett, the weird thing is tomorrow we start governing and I have no idea where my office is <laughs> in the White House. You know, I, I, you know I, we have a lot of – I mean, he wasn't national security. He was domestic policy. But, you know, just the whole point that, um, you know, we're supposed to be running this country. I don't even know where I sit. Um, you know, there is that odd – issue of transition of government and we're here i imagine it'd be smoother since a lot of people might be staying in place because because you know hillary a lot of the people may carry over but it does create if you're if someone that wants to disrupt something that that is a great time to do it yeah and and you know and plus I think, they're hung over <laughs> that's that's right <laughs> No, that's right. And it's a dangerous time we're living, I think, especially on the topic of Russia. I think Russia is a bit cornered, um, as we've seen in Syria and Ukraine, is willing to engage in in fairly aggressive foreign policy adventures. Um, And in cyberspace, really, our concepts that we know well, especially from the Cold War, of deterrence and arms control, escalation management, etc., they are very fuzzy if if they're clear at all. Uh, Right now, there's a whole lot of signaling going on in cyberspace, a whole lot of testing of capabilities and defenses. Um, And so part of what I think we're seeing in these increasingly public displays of cyber attack and defense uh, is really the national security uh, mechanisms and uh, thinkers within each country are trying to position themselves a li- in part de- for deterrence, let's say. You're, you're trying to establish that you can do some attribution, that you have some capability for retaliation. Um, I mean, what if you're Luxembourg? You know, you got nothing, right? Um, <laughs> as opposed, and they've got a lot of money, you know. So, um so there is cyberspace is bigger than any one country. It sort of it sort of covers the whole planet. There's only one cyberspace. There is only one internet. Right. So uh, criminals, spies, soldiers are on the same network with you know um, citizens and and students, and it creates a very interesting space. I think it's great for history. Frankly, I, I don't think we would trade it at all. Um, even to close some of the security holes. And, and I think we have to be careful about closing too many security holes because 
Um, what 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 the internet is really great uh, for is is its um, it, the information sharing, the education, the the empowerment of uh, of people, uh, and of course there's there's uh, potholes and landmines everywhere. But um, I do think that that the um, the internet, largely speaking, has been great for world history. Hopefully, we can all learn something from it and and protect it. Um, so. Anyway, I forgot your question. If I'm off topic at this point, Elma, so so have I. But yeah. <laughs> you know, it, Clausewitz this has the famous maxim: "War is politics by other means." Mm. And um, you know, you've written a lot about, for example, the the, the Soviet, excuse me, the Russian um, attack in Ukraine. And I, I kind of get the politics of the, the attacks on the border Soviet republics. You know, it's them, Russia, trying to reassert itself in its former territory. Um, but some of the more recent attacks, like the TV5 attack in France, in which they, you know, tried to uh, set up a, uh, a, what the phrase is, false flag, um, make it look like a, an ISIS attack when it wasn't. Uh, attacks in Germany, where they shut down, made a steel mill, actually, um, meltdown um those i I don't necessarily understand as well uh, unless it's just to test what their capabilities are yeah i think some of it's testing and some of it is is we are i think personally i think we're living in, in a new era of national security threats uh and opportunities let's say the clausewitz has never been more i think accurate neither has sun tzu I think right. There is a sense in which the wars now will never end and they'll never uh well they begin. I guess they'll they'll never end, let's say. Because the um you here's here's a very interesting point. Um if you're a military commander and you're thinking about a potential war against an adversary, you had better start hacking today. Otherwise, if you wait for the conflict to start, it's going to be too late. Right. Because hacking requires a lot of subversion. It's a lot of work. You can't, you can't really, you, you can't even like hire the NSA and say, I, you know, I need to get into, you know, this hard target tonight. Um, I think everybody will just roll their eyes and say, are you crazy? Uh, no, of course, you know, I'm, I'm using NSA generically. Uh, but let's say you hire a very talented red team or company or intelligence agency. Um, so my point is, in a military context, you're faced with a real serious dilemma these days. You had better start hacking in peacetime if you want to be ready for war. But this leads to what international relations professors uh, call the security dilemma, in which case, if you, the more aggressive you're acting in peacetime, the more you're going to make everybody nervous around you. And so it's going to be sort of this, um, even if you don't desire it, an unwanted escalation of tension and the possibility, a greater possibility for war. Um, so this, this is a this is tough uh, problem to solve, and that's why I think, uh, personally, I think the best place to start with international cybersecurity is, is, is the EU and NATO, because those are the strongest political military alliances, and that's probably where you're going to get the most traction, because cybersecurity is an international problem that really requires an international solution. Now, um, what do you think will be the consequence to Russia for these actions, if any? Um, probably nothing. But um, 
you know, we have to be careful. If, if, the, if the question is specifically focused on Russia, I, I think so much of, well, let's say national security is, is actually subjective. You know, the, when the United States uh, uh, is in a national security crisis and begins to mobilize troops really is up to the president. And the president um, has to weigh the evidence and, and then make hard calls. With Russia, you know, I think we're dealing with a uh, somewhat criminal regime that, that um, is afraid of being overthrown at any given point. Um, and so, is, is, uh, as we've seen, they're buzzing ship, the NATO ships in the Baltic, uh, as well as ha- having troops on the ground in Ukraine and Syria. And, and now we see more uh, attacks in Georgia. And so th- there, there's a lot going on that is aggressive. I think the West, vis-a-vis Russia, needs to be careful not to uh, give Putin uh, what, exactly what he wants, which is perhaps uh, a clear enemy from which he has to defend the Russian people. I think to some degree, Russian citizens know that um, uh, there's a lot of propaganda coming out of Kremlin mouthpieces, but it's hard to know what to do about it. Um, to some degree, Putin may want us to overreact precisely for his own personal political gain. So, um, well, I have a few minutes left, and I want to thank you for participating. We we have um, show notes on our blog, as usual, at cyberlawradio.wordpress that has background on Dr. Gears, as well as links to information about um, kind of a, the timeline of Russian cyber attacks. Um, in this short time we left, if people want to get, get in touch with you or follow you, what's the best way to do so? Well, I think probably the easiest way is on Twitter, at Kenneth Gears. Um, that's where you know I talk with you know many people in cybersecurity, but specifically on the 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 um, where national security and network security meet. Uh, so that's a that's a subset of cybersecurity people and a subset of national security people. But the the space, as you can imagine, is growing very quickly. Um, I started in the U.S. government in 1993, um, and uh, have seen you know. I would say even 10 or 15 years ago, the concept of cyber war, people just thought was science fiction. But those people are, are falling away, I think, and the skeptics are now believers. Okay, last question in the one minute we have. Um, obviously, cyber war is very complex and, and you know, it takes a lot of um, different knowledge to understand what exactly is going on. But something equally vexing is um, tonight's game, Indians or Cubs? Cubs. <laughs> I'm, All a right. Saint, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan, but I am cheering for the Cubs tonight. Wow. History <laughs> is made. Well, um, Dr. Gears, I really want to thank you for joining us, and it's been a pleasure having you. And um, we'll see what happens this election. It's been fascinating even to the end as we were seeing with these attacks. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about disruption in office space with um, Adam Mendler um, with the Velos Group. Um, we'll have more on him after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlong Business Report, only on Cranberry Radio. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
literature is taking over Miami streets. Between November 13th and the 20th, downtown Miami will transform into a full week celebration of the literary arts. More than 500 plus authors are coming to share their new work at the 2016 Miami Book Fair. The porch is open every evening, complete with a full schedule of live music and performances, a farmer's market and cafe, food trucks, craft beer, and more. For more information on the 33rd Miami Book Fair, November 13th to the 20th at Miami-Dade College's Wolfson Campus in downtown Miami, call 305-237-3258 or visit MiamiBookFair.com. Follow Miami Book Fair on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Miami Book Fair. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? Studies show that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average. The web marketing experts at WMETraining.com can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the web marketing experts at WMETraining.com. Get educated and entertained by our panel of on-air experts and peers and engage with us anytime by following us on all major social platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and LinkedIn, so you can reach us before and after every program. We also feature our new live real-time chat room located on our new social shareable live streaming player. Engage with our hosts and listeners like you during every live and recorded program. Don't worry, you can still access all of our great webmasterradio.fm programs at cranberry.fm. Browse through our complete library of programs at cranberry.fm or on demand through iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Google Play. Refresh your bookmarks today to Cranberry Radio at cranberry.fm. Content for your ears and everything in between. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back in our second segment where we have with us um, a couple of people who are going to talk to us about disruption in the workplace, um, particularly in the workspace um, in terms of how you know, a more ergonomic environment um, actually can increase productivity and how the normally staid um, layout of offices is changing, in, in part because of that and also because of other concerns. So we have with us um, Adam Mendler, who's the CEO and founder of Velos Group, and which is a firm based here in um, Los Angeles. And they have a, a, a portfolio of technology-driven businesses that they work with, and one of which is Beverly Hills Cheers, which is a leading office furniture e-tailer. And we have with them also, um, joining Adam, is Ryan Sachs, um, who's the managing director of Beverly Hills Cheers. Gentlemen, can you hear us? Absolutely. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so... I remember talking to uh, the founder of um, ROC, who said that every other business has has had to change, you know, as technology um, has driven certain um, 
results and made people um, they've had to adapt and in this and changing environment. And he said, you know, if you look at office space, it's the same as it was a century ago. Um, but you you are seeing that this may not be the case. First and foremost, uh, that's correct. Hey, uh, the, hey Ryan, the, Bennett. First and foremost, thanks so much for uh, having us on this morning. It's uh, really exciting for both of us to be here, especially uh, the last show before the election. Um, I guess uh, morning of Game Seven, uh, the World Series, and a few days before Hillary and Trump are going at it, and uh, we're talking about office furniture. So, uh, <laughs> well, we're talking about disruption, and just don't mention Bartman. Um, <laughs> so. I, who's throwing out the first? I get first question. First thing first. Who's throwing out the first pitch tonight? Is it uh, Charlie Sheen? Is it Bartman? You know, uh, I heard about. I heard they wanted to get. There was a, you know, a push to get Charlie Sheen, but that was quickly nixed. I don't think Major League Baseball wants uh, that association. You know, I actually met uh, Martin Sheen uh, a couple of months ago. We, we ran into each other um, in the parking lot. I was. I had a lunch meeting in uh, Beverly Hills, and um, I saw Martin Sheen there, and I was trying to get Martin to uh, run for president. I thought he would make a good interview to Grace. Um, but he rebuffed my attempt. And he said, you know, the last thing we need is an actor in the White House. We tried it once before. and Very good comeback. Um, so. Although he was mayor of Malibu. So yeah. um, let's let's talk about the office space situation. You know, it, why, why and how is it changing, if at all? So, Bennett, offices around the country are leaving the traditional office space, like cubicles, for example, or closed fixed workstations, and they're opting for more open space and collaborative workspaces for performance benefits and employee happiness. Um, the, what they, what a lot of research has been poured in the last 30 years, and a lot of it is coming out in the last few years, and that's why we've seen a, a change. Um, one of the key components for this change has been ergonomics, which is understanding how the body moves in the office. Um, a great example is the rise of the tech companies in Silicon Valley. So there are a lot of everyone, everyone who wants to work in software or computers or programming, Silicon Valley is where they want to be. Right. And they base, they try to recruit, and, and when they recruit, one of the key um, things that they offer is their environment. When you open the doors to Google, you see open space. You see amazing places with different colors, with uh, cool chairs, with standing desks. You don't have assigned workspaces. You have people working on laptops in different areas. And then you also have play areas for events where you see the pool tables, ping pong tables, foosball tables. Um, and what people have found, researchers and ergonomics have found that when you come to work every day, if you sit there and you feel that you're unhappy and you don't like working in a certain environment, your, pro your productivity is going to dip. So what employers are trying to do right now is to create an office environment where people can sit down, feel comfortable, and feel like I, I enjoy coming to work in this workspace. Um, and even further, there's so there's not just... It's not just happening in Silicon Valley. 
there's a billion dollar software company in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they're trying to recruit and they're trying to, you know, look at how can we get people who are trying to, to go to Silicon Valley. No one wants to come to Raleigh, North Carolina over Silicon Valley. So they actually did a complete remodel of their building and they created a floor called a floor for fun where they put in ping pong tables, pool tables, but they also realized that this new generation, these recruits, they care about their health and fitness. So they remodeled their building to add staircases. They added a gym. Um, they, they let their employees choose their own standing desk. They let their employees choose their own ergonomic work chairs and since they've been doing that, they've been able to recruit seven. There's been a 17% increase in their recruitment since making these changes. So there's been not just in technology, but in professional workplaces, um, there've been office spaces that have now been deemed depressing. And one that I think uh, your listeners can might be able to attest to has been law firms. Um, I was actually reading a, I was reading um, a report from Psychology Today that showed that out of 1.2 million lawyers in the country, 240,000 are depressed. Um, and then it actually cited that a legal commentator, Josh Blackman, in California Lawyers Magazine, uh, did a poll and showed that lawyers rank fourth among professions with highest suicide rates. And that an estimated of 40% suffer from depression by the time they graduate from law school. So even in your typical law office, you know, people are very unhappy. And, you know, what, what people are trying to do now is how can we make them happier to be more productive? And one of the ways that we've seen is transforming the, the workspace today into a more modern, more ergonomic, more health-conscious workplace for employees to come in and feel better about themselves and to really get people moving uh, throughout the day. So um, I don't know whether I should be jumping out the window since I, <laughs> I, this is, I am calling from a law firm. But, uh, <laughs> but so I, the I, point I, is, the point is, Bennett, is that if, if we got you the right chair, if we got you the right type of environment to show you how you know, everybody's been doing it wrong for so many years with research backing it up. You could actually change the way you work and you'll have a more pleasurable environment coming into work every day. So what I'm saying is there's hope. Don't jump. There's hope. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you you always see it. There's always one guy yelling, jump, jump. But um, Adam, what are you saying? You're saying jump. Hopefully it's not your client who's telling that. <laughs> that that's a, that's a sign you should jump. Um, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna throw out a question, and then uh, we're probably gonna take a break and let you answer it on the when we come back. But you actually you raised an important point, um, and I had a client that they were the startup that were kind of crammed into one or two rooms in this you know dinky office space you know subprime. Um, off the main drag, and then they got bought by a public company, and they say, "Hey, we're you know, you're now part of this multi-million dollar company. We're going to put you in this really nice office tower, and all of you are going to get to have offices since you've worked so hard." 
And everyone was in their own siloed little office with their doors maybe closed or not. And they found that their productivity went down. That, um, well, it was definitely more, it was nicer space. The, the flow of communication got disrupted. And um, people were, your ability to stay on top of things, your ability to ask quick questions, you know, if not sure, um, got interrupted. And, uh, and so then when that company failed and the, the, the same people came together to kind of start, start over with a new company, um, they did the exact, they decided, no, we're going to have an open floor. I want to be able to see, you know, everyone I work with. And we want everyone to be able to see each other so they can always ask questions. And even after that company was successful and that company got acquired by another public company, um, they moved into space where they, they remained open because that was an important value to them. So um, I'll let you answer that, but we have to we'll take a break for it to be open to our advertisers. And um, so you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on Cranberry Radio. We'll be back after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Content for your ears and everything in between. Cranberry.fm The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from our window ledge here in downtown <laughs> Santa Monica. Um, any event, uh, actually, we don't have a window ledge. So I, I couldn't. I could even do it if I wanted to. But um, so I threw out the question, gentlemen. Um, but what, what did you think of that that scenario? So that's it's a common theme that we've been seeing in offices who've been moving, relocating, or reconstructing their offices um they people don't want to be trapped in an office all day um when you collaborate with others you get to think properly you get to innovate you get to come up with ideas um so people tend to want to work together and be able to to bounce ideas off of each other but there is a caveat um 
just because there's a lot of people saying that open spaces are better, it's you still need to have a balance where people could go to a private room if necessary to do deep, uh, you know, think thinking work such as uh, an attorney who needs to write a brief. An open workspace might not be the best place for them. Um, so you need to have a balance. So there is still a misconception about um, just getting an open space will be much better for you. It's it's a balance of having an open space, but you need to make sure that you do have um, the appropriate places where people could go to do the more intense type of work. So what do you think of workspaces where I know um... – I don't know if they still are, but the ad agency Chai Day used to have no assigned offices. You know, you basically sit where you need to sit that day, depending on who you're working with. So that that's been a huge trend um, because people. The the reason behind that is people they don't feel the need to have a assigned workspace. And a study was actually done on assigned workspaces, and they found that in most companies, there's only approximately 20% of people who have that territorial feeling where they want to come to their exact desk every single day. Um, and the this whole is my stapler. <laughs> exactly, Milton from Office Space is one of those one of those guys. Which, uh, by the way, I think he was that guy. I think Milton is Ken Bone from that last uh, <laughs> presidential debate with that red sweater. That's all I could think about when I saw Ken Bone ben, how, ask that question. Ben, how old are your listeners? Um, What's the uh, age range? Of, of our listeners? Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's the gamut. You know, we're, we're, this is a, a very tech-savvy audience. So my guess, you know, my understanding is it's in the, the twenty to fifty-five range. You know, when we first started right. the Bellows group, we um, a little bit of a side note. Uh, in our first office space, we had a an open space with lots of Herman Miller chairs, and it was the exact environment that we um, advocate that our clients um, implement. And um, we had you know lots of cool things on the wall, and one of the things we had was an office space uh, poster. And we had a bunch of interns our first summer, and um, a few of the interns came over to us and said, you know, what is that? What is office space? You're kidding me. Wow. And then we, we pulled all of our interns, and we realized none of our interns knew what office space was. Really? Uh, it was at that moment in time that I felt very, very old at age uh, 28. That's the decline of Western civilization right there. <laughs> um, it's- <laughs> I didn't know who Al Bundy was, so uh, for whatever it's worth. Wow. Yeah. Um that's interesting. I think, um, you know, and you look at the situation, you know, um, I remember the decline of you know, the first dot-com crash in 2001. And uh, there was a, um, a retailer that specialized in, um, you know, kind of selling used furniture. And um, they had a giant warehouse that was about the size of maybe two-thirds of a football field. And it was all Herman Miller cheers. Well, what, does yeah, that, so her, what does that say to you? So Herman Miller, the, the Aeron chair, yeah. is the most iconic office chair in the country. And it's been the leading office chair since 1994. And 
what's happened is people want to buy that chair for a variety of reasons. But when a VC starts a company or a new company starts up, the reason they get that chair primarily is because it's iconic and it's, it's similar to wanting to buy a Mercedes. It's, it's kind of a showpiece. They want to be able to say, you know, if someone comes into their office, they see this very recognizable chair. I mean, this chair you see on TV, it's in commercials, um, it's in your favorite movies. Um, it's just one of the chairs. It's on ESPN. Um, newscasters use it. It's, it's a chair with a status. So the problem here is that people are spending a ton of money on chairs, and they also they don't really know how to use it. So when a company goes under, one of the first things that gets taken away are is the office furniture. Right. So companies, you know, like Beverly Hills Chairs, for example, took advantage of this. And the reason, one of the main reasons why Beverly Hills Chairs was created was because we realized that, you know, you can buy these chairs now at a refurbished price and you don't have to spend a thousand dollars on the chair. So there's a whole cost benefit ratio that comes into play when buying office furniture. It's an investment that people want to, want to make, but they also have certain budgets. So if you can find a budget and you could find the right ergonomic furniture for your employees, there's a lot to gain there. And um, so we only have a few minutes left. Adam, what is your view on disruption and your, your company's role in it? Sure. So, um, I mean, disruption is constant. Uh, if you're not changing, you're getting left behind. You, you always have to innovate. Very, very big believers in uh, constantly pushing the needle and constantly uh, trying to think about um, disruption, how, you know, from bottom up, less about top down, more about bottom up. And, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, our own businesses trying to disrupt different industries or trying to empower clients that we're working with to disrupt within their businesses and within their industries. Um, we're very, very big advocates of disruption. So um, the way that that's translated with Beverly Hills Chairs in particular uh, is it's given us exposure to a lot of amazing and disruptive startup companies and even a lot of amazing and disruptive established companies that um, aren't necessarily thought of um, by the mainstream press as being uh, you know, leading innovators, but we really get to see uh, a lot of really interesting and thoughtful things that people are doing in and around the workplace. And that, uh, you know, obviously has very, very deep-seated uh, effects beyond the way people sit in a chair or sit and stand by their desk. It really affects the way a company culture is shaped. It really affects the kinds of people that will ultimately work for a company, who is retained, who comes, who goes, how happy employees are. Um, obviously, healthcare is such a massive issue and, um, you know, how, it's all intertwined. So, you know, unfortunately, we only have a couple of minutes left on the show and, you know, this is a segment onto of itself, but, uh, you know, we think 
every minute of every day about disruption and um, you know we, it's it's something very very important to us disruption and empowerment really um, you know we we try to empower everyone who works for us and we try to empower everyone who we do business with whether it's you know selling them a chair or selling them a desk or providing them with strategic advice when it comes to technology doesn't matter to us uh, ultimately what we're trying to do is uh, improve disrupt power um, you know one Herman Miller Aaron chair time and if in terms of disrupting um, who's losing streak is going to get disrupted tonight <laughs> that's a tough question my god I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> say that you know I'm, I'm biased here so uh, die-hard Angels fan, definitely a homer. Love the Angels, live and die Angels baseball. So I'm going to stick. I'm actually not going to go with Joe Madden, the great former Angels bench coach uh, who had the chance oh. to meet a little kid. Great guy. But I'm going to stick with uh, fellow members of the American League and say the Cleveland Indians. And uh, Corey Kluber is going to uh, – It's hard to be. Yeah. Out. Game seven, Cleveland Indians. Who do you like, Bennett? Well, I think uh, you look at Corey Kluber, though he is going on, you know, he's what, two, only two days. Um, but my theory is it's going to go 12 innings and then get rained out. Because <laughs> 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 you know, neither one can win. That would be the, the perfect plot. What if uh, Bud Selig comes back and just calls it a tie? <laughs> that would be appropriate. So if people want to contact you, or what's the best way to do so? Ryan, you want to take that? Beverly, yeah. You could go to our website, beverlyhillschairs.com, beverlyhillschairs.com, or you could call us at 424-CHAIR-80, 424-CHAIR-80. Thanks, well, thank guys. you very much, gentlemen. Um, we're running out of time, but I want it's been a really great session. Um, have a great week. Um, go um, Cubbians. <laughs> and um, we'll be back next week with Mike O'Neill talking about the election results. Um, see you then. Be sure to vote. Just don't vote for Trump. Have a great week. The opinions expressed those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.